Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey there, my name is Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. If you like learning about the history of the Asia Pacific, I bet you'd also like learning about the history of the African continent. Our current season is focused on ancient Egypt. If that sounds appealing to you, come check out the History of Africa podcast here on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Back to you, Craig. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the complete history of the Asia-Pacific War, 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. We are currently looking at the major events that led up to the Pacific War, and today's episode is going to be on the many attempts at opening up Japan. Now, if you're not already subscribed and or left a like, please do so, since this is a small channel and we could use all the help that we can get. So, when beginning to do my research on this episode, I quickly realized the rabbit hole it could lead into. There is simply far too much information involved with Japanese history, and I cannot go into great detail on everything. Thus, the purpose of this episode is to explain two major events. The first one, what was the 214-year Sukoku period, which means closed country, for Japan, and the second being the many attempts by foreigners to open up Japan during this period. So let's quickly start with how Japan began relations with Europeans. Now, the first affiliation for Japan with the West was in 1543, when three Portuguese traders arrived on board a Chinese junk at the island of Tanagashima, south of Kyushu. This is reportedly the first time Europeans reached Japan. In 1549, St. Francis Xavier arrived in a pirate ship beginning a Christian missionary campaign in Kagoshima. The Portuguese began to trade at Hirado, but soon wished to find a better port and then found one at Nagasaki. Along with trade came a wave of Christian converts in Japan, and in 1570, Daimyo Omaru Sumitada converted to Catholicism. The Portuguese Jesuits were given jurisdiction of Nagasaki under Sumitada. Around early 17th century, Holland and Britain began limited trade with Japan. The Dutch East India Company set up in the port of Hirado in 1609, and the British within 1613. While the British became more and more discouraged by limited trade, the Dutch were much more enthusiastic. Now, the Portuguese and Spanish throne united in 1580, and they became an important source of trade to the Tokugawa shogunate. However, they also brought with them Christian missionaries. Christianity was a looming threat to the Tokugawa shogunate, who periodically persecuted Christians and formed anti-Christian edicts. The Portuguese and Spanish seemed to bring more Christian ideology when they traded than their counterparts, the Dutch and British. Let's remember that Spain and Portugal were mostly Catholic, while the Dutch and British were mostly Protestant. The shogun at the time, Iyasu, had a tough decision to make a foreign policy and trade. Iyasu saw that Christian menace becoming more and more of a threat, and the Dutch began to fan the flames of that fear. The Dutch pointed out to him that while the Catholics wished to trade while pushing Christianity on them, the Dutch only wanted trade. With many Japanese converting to Catholicism, problems were eventually going to emerge. The Shimabara Rebellion was an uprising that occurred in Shimabara Domain 
between December 17, 1637 to April 15, 1638. Uprisings were not uncommon in Japan, but this one was unique as the Shimabara domain held many Christian Japanese. During the uprising, the Tokugawa shogunate requested aid from the Dutch against the Catholic rebels, and they whom promptly supplied them with gunpowder and cannons. The Dutch wanted to show their form of Christianity was not the same as the Portuguese and Spanish, and to make a point, they helped shell from their warship Hera Castle, which was held by the Christian rebels. Take note, this is a time in history when Catholics and Protestants were pretty much at war with another, and it is rather a cheeky move that the Dutch would uh, shoot at some Catholics in Japan. The shogunate quelled the rebellion and suspected European Catholics had been involved in its orchestration, and so he drove out the Portuguese and Spanish from Japan in 1639. Now, before the rebellion, the Tokugawa shogunate had been building a man-made island named Jujima in Nagasaki for the Portuguese-Spanish traders. The idea was to limit the Christian influence by quarantining the traders on this man-made island, which was a 600 feet by 200 feet fan-shaped island connected to the mainland by a stone bridge with guards stationed on it. As a result of the expulsion of the Portuguese and Spanish, the island fell into the hands of the Dutch in 1641, and from 1641 onwards, Dujima was the only harbor that Chinese and Dutch ships were allowed to come to to be in Japan. Uh, the Dutch were charged a yearly rental and had a few warehouses that housed 20 or so Dutch residents, with some quarters for Japanese interpreters and guards. Japanese policy discouraged any Dutch from studying Japanese, lest the, out the outsiders learn you know, much about the language and or the country. All Dutch ships that entered the harbor had to undergo a rigid system in which they would unload all their guns and lock up all their Bibles and any Christian literature within barrels. When crew members came into the harbor, they were also required to walk over images of Madonna and Child. This was a test engineered by the Tokugawa shogunate to stop Christians from entering the port. Now remember, the Dutch were Protestant, so this was not a sacrilege for them, unlike their Catholic counterparts. This was perhaps unbeknownst to the Japanese completely. The Dutch were forbidden from studying Japanese, and Japanese families living within Dujima were taught Dutch to be interpreters, a profession that was passed on for generations. The entire idea behind Dujima was for the Tokugawa shogunate to be able to receive trade goods, and more importantly, outside global news, on a yearly basis, without any chance of European influence entering Japan. The Japanese traded mostly for war-related materials, you know, tin, lead, saltpeter, borax, curios, and sometimes luxury goods like deer pelts and spices, and even European items such as eyeglasses, clocks, and mirrors. In return, the Dutch usually traded for silver, copper, and Japanese porcelain. The ships took trips a total of 116 times in Tokugawa years, annually from 1633 to around 1764, and then benally until 1790 when it became just about every four years until 1850. Tokugawa Japan enacted a policy in 1639 known as Sokuku. Sokuku literally meant chained country, and it was an isolationist uh, policy that forbid Japanese from leaving the country under penalty of death, with very few, if any, foreign nationals being permitted to enter and trade with Japan at Dujima, like we were saying. 
Sokoku lasted 214 years, and Japan had very limited contact with the outside world, but note this does not mean that they were completely isolated. Sakoku was implemented for a variety of reasons, but some of the major ones were to remove any religious and colonial influence from Japan, primarily from Portugal and Spain. During the Sakoku period, three, uh, there were four domains that allowed minor trade with foreigners. And these four domains were the Izo, controlled by the Matsumune clan, current-day Hakaedo, which traded with the Ainu people, uh, the Ainu are an indigenous group that reside in the northern island of Japan, and I might have more content later on them. But they were foreign to, um, let's say, the mainland Japanese. Uh, there was also Tushima, controlled by the Shimazu clan, which traded with the Joseon dynasty of Korea. There was the Rikuku kingdom, which was controlled by the Shimazu clan as well, but it should be noted that Ryuku was considered a semi-independent and thus quasi-foreign um, nation of its own. And lastly, the largest one we've been talking about was Nagasaki, controlled by the Bakufu, which traded with China, and as well as the Dutch East India Company. A lot of people with limited knowledge of Japanese history look at the closed-off period as Japan simply hiding away from the world, but this is not true. The Tokugawa leaders of Japan were maintaining this limited trade network with foreigners to obtain international news. Indeed, those privy to the news were quite aware of the wars that were going on in the world and the in certain advancements in technology. The Tokugawa Bakufu were utilizing the Sokoku policy to ensure sufficient control over the powerful lords within their country. By controlling the outside world from coming in, the Bakufu was able to make sure no powerful lords would obtain the means to overthrow them, and we had seen this in previous years during the warlord periods. Bottlenecking almost everything through Nagasaki worked for 214 years, and in the end, really, it was the only way that they could maintain a quasi-control over Japan. Now, after explaining how Japan found itself in an isolation period, how did she open up, you might be asking? Because we all know the world was not going to simply allow Japan to hide. So number one, Russia. Russia poked its head a few times during the Sokoku period because the climate of the northmost point of Japan did not allow for rice cultivation. This led to trade between the Matsumune clan and the Ainu people for such things as pelts and fish. The Ainu people are an ethnic group, as I said, of indigenous to the northern islands of Japan and the northern mainland itself. Special pot spots were set up, called basho, where Ainu would come to barter. One of the most popular things they would trade was herring, which was grounded up and dried, made for a highly prized fertilizer used for rice paddies in central Japan. However, Japan was not the only people trading with the Ainu. People from Kamchatka and northern Karel were also trading with the Ainu for pelts. Russia began exploring Central Asia, beginning in the Urals and extending towards the North America with the colonization of Alaska and California. As Russian pioneers traveled, they would often trade with the Ainu for pelts of sable and fox. During the 18th century, there was some sporadic Russian and Japanese shipwrecks that laid either side in Russia or Japanese territory, but this never really amounted to much. By 1800, Russians had probed south of the Kurils, and even in mainland Japan. The Russian-American Company was delegated in 1799, authority similar to the Dutch East India Company, 
that to administer territory and trade. Russia was having difficulty supplying distant posts across the Central Asian landmass and wanted to develop a Pacific Coast source. This led Nikolai Rezanov, carrying a letter from Alexander I, to ask for the privileges of trade to enter Nagasaki Harbor in 1804. Nikolai waited for six months in Nagasaki to finally receive words from the Bakufu officials from Edo, who said, No. Nikolai was furious at this, and he authorized two subordinates to stage raids on Japanese settlements in the southern Karels and the Sakhalin Islands in 1806 and 1807. Uh, the result? Well, the Japanese became more vigilant against them, and in 1811, the Japanese had even managed to capture a Russian survey vessel in Japanese northern waters. They took its commander, a Mr. Vasily Golovinin, excuse me if I mispronounce that, and they held him for two years before handing him over to the Dutch in Nagasaki. The Japanese made it clear to him they had zero interest of trade and stated, Our countrymen wish to carry on no commerce with foreign lands, for we know no want of necessary things. For quite a long period of time, there was a concern within Japan of a new Mongolian invasion, similar to the 13th century one, but this time being at the hands of the Russian Empire. However, nothing came to fruition. Russia simply had more vested interest in northern China and its holdings in America at this point. Number two, Western Europeans. The flames of the French Revolution spread to Holland, where its conservative political structure was overthrown in 1794 and a new Batavian Republic was established. This had an immediate impact on Dutch holdings in Java and Ujima in Nagasaki. In 1798, England went to war with Holland and seized its colonial outposts in South Africa and Indonesia. The Batavian Republic became a monarchy and Napoleon Bonaparte placed his brother on its throne. As a result of the political shifts and the wars, the Dutch lost control of their international holdings and were forced to give up places and ask for the help of neutral ships to move their supplies for trade. While most of their territorial holdings were lost, Jujima remained the last outpost that still flew the Dutch flag. From 1797 to 1817, Jujima was supplied by neutral ships, mostly American, which were told to use the Dutch flag and to conceal their Bibles and weapons and pretend, well, that they were Dutch entering Jujima. As a result of all of this, the Japanese officials in Jujima were not aware anything was going on at first. Now, remember, the real purpose of Dujima was for the Tokugawa officials to learn international news from the Dutch, and the fake Dutch suddenly became a little bit invasive about this. The Japanese began to ask questions and learnt of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and events happening in Europe. Some English sailors had also shipwrecked in Japan, and the Japanese noticed how they dressed exactly like the Dutch. This led the Japanese to begin studying other languages other than Dutch, such as French, Russian, and English. The Bakufu officials realized that Europeans dressed all alike, all worshipped Christianity, and wrote horizontally in a similar fashion. With this knowledge, in 1825, the Bakufu ordered that no distinction should be made among Westerners and to expel all of them. The Dutch had finally lost their special status amongst the Westerners. This was mostly because uh, they were playing a trick, having used Americans and neutral people to move products into Dejima, pretending that they were all Dutch, and the Japanese obviously found this deceptive because it was. 
Number three, China. War broke out in China in 1838 with the first Opium War and was climaxed by the signing of the Treaty of Nanking in 1842. News trickled into Jujima and Daimyo Muzuno Tadakuni responded, This concerns a foreign country, but I think it should provide good warning for us. Dejima had two channels for news, one being Dutch. The Dutch were interrogated thoroughly, as, you know, in the usual secrecy, without the greater population of Japan ever knowing much about the outside world. However, the second channel would prove to be much more difficult to keep secret, that being Chinese literature. Books from China were a traded good in Japan, and educated Japanese sought them eagerly. Despite rigorous attempts at prohibiting any materials that could cause social unrest, some got through from China. The samurai intellect Sakumo Shozan, upon reading of the British war with China, began urging for coastal defense. Bakufu officials began to question the Dutch at Nagasaki about the things they had learnt of the war. From the Dutch, they learnt of the size of the British force in China and its naval steam-powered capabilities. To this they responded, Why have the Tartars, they're referring to Manchus, lost, since they are said to be brave enough? A Dutch responded, Bravery alone is not sufficient. The art of war demands something more. No outlandish power can compete with a European one, as can be seen by the great realm of China, which has been conquered by only 4,000 men. This led Muzuno Tadakuni to revoke the Don't Think Twice Edict of 1825 we previously mentioned. The official rationale given to the Dutch was that compassion had led the shogun to revert procedures. The truth was, Japan was trying desperately to avoid the likelihood of war. This led King William II of the Netherlands in 1844 to make a formal proposal to the shogun. The document was brought to Dejima by a special warship, the Palembang, and the letter expressed the king's appreciation at the Bakufu's revocation of the 1825 edict. The letter then explained that because of the Napoleonic Wars, a great need for trade arose, and this led England to war with China, a war that led to the death of thousands of Chinese and indemnity payments of millions. It warned that a similar danger would befall upon Japan, and the new world was being knit together by technology. The Japanese simply had no real answer to all this. They told him kindly not to write again, and that everything he said was impossible. Yeah. The Dutch warning, however, proved very accurate. Uh, by the time the Japanese had sent their response back, many foreign ships had come ashore at several different places in Japan, and it seemed that China had been the catalyst for opening up Japan. Number four, America. America was driven towards Japan for a few reasons. Prior to the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania in 1858, oil was procured by the whaling industry, and many Pacific waters were busy with whalers. Some of these whalers ended up on the shores of Japan, and many of these shipwrecked sailors were mistreated. America joined in the competition for Chinese trade with the Treaty of Wangzhe after British blew down the door in China. With the advent of the steam engine, America required coaling stations en route to China, and, well, Japan was smack dab in the middle of that. So in 1845, the U.S. representative to China was instructed to send a mission to Japan. 
Captain James Biddle arrived in Edo Bay in 1846 with two ships, hoping to open relations, but the Japanese told him that foreigners must go to Nagasaki. Since James did not have authorization to use force, he simply withdrew. Then the famous Perry expedition of 1853 was more carefully prepared. Commodore Matthew C. Perry was given these objectives when visiting Japan on July the 2nd, 1853 in Edo Bay. To protect seamen and property, permission to obtain supplies, find a possible depot for coal, and permission to enter one or more of the ports for the purpose of trade. Perry was told if having exhausted every argument and every means of persuasion, the Commodore was to change his tone and show determination of the U.S. for protecting their seamen. So yeah, Perry never changed his tone. He actually began talks with the Japanese by sending them white flags and a harsh letter. Failure to meet his demands would bring on war to Japan, and they would certainly lose. And in the case of losing that war, they would have white flags he provided to surrender. What a guy. Perry had come with four ships mounted with 61 guns, carrying over 967 men. He had passed by Naha on the way to Edo Bay, and made a note to Washington that America might be better off taking the Rikuku Islands for themselves. The American ships were six to ten times larger than any Japanese ship, and their dark hulls earned them the name Kurofune, meaning black ships. I hope I pronounced that right. Excuse me, Japanese audience. Now, Perry was told to go to Nagasaki, but he told the Japanese he had a letter from the President of the United States for the Emperor of Japan, and he would not deviate from those orders. By the time arrangements had been worked out for delivering the letters, the shore was lined up with thousands of Japanese soldiers. Perry warned them that he could call upon 50 more ships from the Pacific waters and as many more from California if they commenced hostilities. The Japanese allowed the American landing party to enter and the Americans began marching between the Japanese soldier columns. Perry noticed the weapons they had were 17th century-like as he walked on to the meeting place. The meeting was formal and long, being translated back and forth from English to Dutch to Japanese. Perry was eager to return to Chinese waters to replenish his supplies that were quite low, and he announced to the Japanese he would return in April or May to receive their response to the letters he had delivered. Perry returned in February, uh, sooner than the Japanese had expected. This time, Perry brought a much larger force with three steamers with him. Again, the Japanese demanded he come ashore at a specific location, such as Uraaka, which was uh, far from Edo. Perry demanded he come ashore at Kanagawa, near present-day Yokohama, and had his way. In a similar fashion to last time, Perry and his men marched between rows of Japanese soldiers. Negotiations went on for 23 days, and Perry maintained a very heavy-handed stance. He pressed for trade privileges, asserting that the Chinese found them quite favorable. I am sure that's not true. The Japanese negotiator remarked, that wasn't the reason for coming to Japan, to secure the safety of shipwrecked seamen and not trade. A humorous kind of chide at him. The result was Japan providing two harbors, Shimoda and Hakodate, for American ships to enter to be able to resupply and receive coal. Shipwrecked sailors would be helped and returned. Americans were permitted to pay for supplies they received, 
And note, Perry saw this as a foot in the door for trade and that American consuls could reside in Shimoda. Both sides had reasons to be pleased with the meeting, for both sides met their minimum objectives. Perry believed he had opened the door to trade with Japan, and Japan had avoided the fate that China had encountered in its subjugation to unequal treaties. However, when American Representative Townsend Harris came to reside in Shimoda, he brought with him news of China to Japan. New wars had begun in China, and Japan was well to submit voluntarily because she would not be able to protect herself. When Perry departed, Japan faced many problems. First, there was many implied threats thrown at them by America, and China's situation seemed to show what disaster awaited them. The shogun, Tokugawa Iyoshi, died literally a few days after Perry left, and was succeeded by his sickly son, Tokugawa Liseda. The administration was basically in charge, uh, led by Abe Masahiro, and Masahiro felt Japan did not have the ability to resist the American demands, and he sought all daimyos for their opinions. There was a wide open debate in Japan amongst daimyo and scholars without uh, a universal decision. However, what was agreed was that resistance at this time was futile, and Japan, one way or another, was open. So, to end all of this, let's give a little brief summary. Tokugawa Japan enforced an isolationist foreign policy known as Sakuku, which lasted 214 years. Russia, Western nations, Chinese literature, and finally America attempted to open Japan back up to the world. Commodore Perry eventually ends up being the one to formally get Japan to open in 1858, and Japan was soon to sign a very unequal treaty under distress of being colonized or attacked like China was at that time. Let's remember the Second Opium War was occurring. How does this have anything to do with the Pacific War, you might be asking? Well, what would occur after Japan was opened up is much written about, and it is the Meiji Restoration period of Japan. This would be an epic process of modernization that took Tokugawa Japan into the 21st century like a lightning bolt, and with it, the complete militarization of the nation and a path to world war. Really hoped you enjoyed this episode. Please leave a like, a comment, even if it's not a nice one, and subscribe if you're not done so. And please stay tuned, because the next episode will be on the Meiji Restoration of Japan. And this has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out. Hello and welcome back to the Pacific War Channel. The channel will recover the complete Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. And uh, today we're going to be doing probably the most complicated task and that is trying to summarize the Meiji Restoration of Japan. You might be asking yourself, how does this have anything to do with the Pacific War? The Meiji Restoration directly led to a militarized Japan empire later on that we see in the 1940s, which would inevitably cause the Second World War. Now, two things before I begin. The first being, if you've not already seen the previous episode on the many attempts at opening up Japan, please click on the card above, as it gives a ton of context about, you know, how we got to this point. Second, there is simply no way for me to summarize the Meiji Restoration in one episode. 
please bear with me that the only way to describe such a feat is like summarizing the entire Renaissance into one episode. The Meiji Restoration encompassed an entire shift in all aspects of Tokugawa Japan into the modern era. For those unfamiliar with Tokugawa Japan, it's referring to the Edo Shogunate period of 1600 to 1868. I will be narrowing it down to some key aspects for the sake of coherency, and I hope you will forgive me if I didn't touch on subjects that you're interested in. I apologize. Also, just a few terms you should know before beginning. Shogunate was a hereditary military dictatorship of Japan led by the Shogun, who happened to be the Tokugawa family during 1600 to 1868. The Bakufu was the military government headed also by the Shogun. Daimyo is a regional samurai ruler who resides over a han, which we can also refer to as a domain. Now, how did we get here? Reminder, my previous episode spoke about this, but here is a loose summarization. Tokugawa Japan enforced an isolationist foreign policy known as Sakoku, a closed country, for over 214 years. During this time, there was many attempts by foreign nations to open Japan up for trade, and this eventually occurred in 1853 when Commodore Matthew Perry led an expedition to Japan forcing them to open up and sign a treaty with the United States. Signature of this treaty would occur in 1858. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce, signed in 1858, outlined an exchange of diplomatic agents between the U.S. and Japan, the opening of the following ports for foreign trade, Ido, Kobe, Nagasaki, Niigata, and Yokohama, to allow U.S. citizens to live and trade within open ports, for foreign residents to abide by the laws of their own nations instead of Japanese law system, a fixed low import-export duty subject to international control, but heavily favoring the U.S., and the right of religious freedom and church construction to serve the needs of the U.S. nationals within the foreign settlements of treaty ports. Now, this treaty was quite unequal, as you can see. The treaty favored foreigners, particularly the United States, when it came to trade, and literally stamped on Japan's sovereignty. Why did Japan give in to all of this? Well, a large reason was because of the Second Opium War. You see, the Japanese officials were being fed news of how horrible the situation was for China, and they knew they had little to no chance of fighting off the Western nations at this time. They did not possess the technological weapons, nor have the military structure to even compete with, with such nations as U.S. or Britain. This treaty was followed up by a few other treaties, which were just as unfair to Japan, such as the Anglo-Japanese Friendship Treaty and the Anglo-Japanese Amity and Commerce Treaty. Now, the Tokugawa Shogun, Yoshi, literally died after uh, a few days when Matthew Perry's expedition came into Japan, and he was preceded by Tokugawa Iesada, who promptly died in 1858, <laughs> most likely from a cholera outbreak. Uh, needless to say, the Tokugawa rule and even their shoguns were crumbling, and some key figures would rise up as a result. The treaty and foreigner situation created two factions among the Shishi, uh, this refers to men of high purpose. These are court officials, young samurai, daimyos, uh, basically the most powerful people in the country. One faction sought to revere the emperor and expel the foreigner, Sonyo Joy. They looked to bolster the power of the emperor and saw the shogun as a threat. These people are usually referred to as Ishin Shishi, and I will be calling them that from now on. The shogunate supporting faction thought that the foreigners were too powerful to expel and that signing the treaty was in the best interest of the country. A powerful entity emerged amongst the shogunate supporters named Li Nasuke, 
who became the Tyro, Great Elder, a position uh, lesser to the Shogun, but because of all the chaos, he was in fact controlling the Bakufu, more so than the Shogun. Seeing this disastrous situation laid out between the two factions, Li Natsuki did something a little bit rash. Li Natsuki ordered a purge, known as the Ansei Purge, on behalf of the Bakufu faction, and it removed the power of the Ishin Shishi via imprisonment, torture, exile, and even execution. Over 100 people were victims to this purge, uh, some losing their lives. Li Natsuki assumed his actions would end the Ishin Shishi movement. As a result of this, in 1860, Li Natsuki was assassinated on his way to the Edo castle by Ishin Shishi, and this became known as the Sakura Damon Incident. The assassination was followed up by a Choshu Domain, today uh, Yamaguchi Prefecture, who were Ishin Shishi, seizing control over the imperial court within Kyoto. Domains seeking to ally themselves to the Shogun faction, such as the Anzu and Satsuma Domains, today's Fukushima and Kagoshima Prefecture, immediately expelled the Choshu Samurai in 1863, which led the Choshu to send an entire army to try and enter the Imperial Palace in Kyoto. However, again, the Anzu and Satsuma forces repelled them. So to complicate this story further, the Satsuma and Choshu domains experienced some foreign military might in minor conflicts with Britain, and realized that expelling the foreigners was pretty much impossible. This led the former rivals of Satsuma and Choshu Domain to make a secret alliance in 1866. Then, the Satsuma Domain refused to participate in a Bakufu expedition against Choshu Domain and was secretly arming the Choshu with a large quantity of arms. During all of this, the current shogun Tokugawa Iemochi dies and he's succeeded by a rather reluctant Tokugawa Yoshinobu. Yoshinobu came to power at a terrible time. Satsuma Domain, Choshu Domain, and Toso Domain formed an alliance seeking to abolish the shogunate system and give power back to the emperor. Advisors to Yoshinobu pushed him to resign as shogun and take up a lesser role in the new governance system. He tendered his resignation on November the 9th, 1867, to the emperor, Taishi Hokan. With the dissolution of the shogun role, this also meant that the court was proclaiming the restoration of imperial rule of old, Osei Fuko no Daigore, meaning the emperor was the one in power, but not really. You see, Yoshinubo dissolved the shogun position and created a council which was chaired by him. This new system was called Kobu Gaita, and basically he was shogun without being called shogun. This meant Tokugawa's influence on all aspects of the new government. The Satsuma Choshu Tosa coalition were outraged and decided to take control by force, and this led to what is known as the Boshin War. And we'll be referring to this as the Restoration War as well. Uh, I know this is going to kill you, uh, but I am going to gloss over the Boshin War, as I will be doing an entire episode solely upon it later. What you need to know is that it was a civil war between those backing the old Shogun against those backing the imperial court. In all honesty though, it was just a vacuum uh, power grab situation and everyone just chose a side. Even western nations played a minor role in this. The imperial court faction won and the Satsuma Choshu and Tosa domains having played a key role in the victory gained key positions in the new government for several decades. The current emperor Komei dies on February the 3rd 1867 and emperor Meiji takes the throne. On September the 19th, the name of the city of Edo was changed to Tokyo, meaning Eastern Capital, 
this new era would be called the Meiji or Enlightened Rule, after, of course, the emperor's name. On April the 7th, 1868, the emperor was presented with a charter oath, and the charter oath consisted of five points. Deliberate councils shall be widely established in all matters decided by public discussion. All classes, high and low, shall unite in vigorously carrying out the administration of affairs of state. The common people, no less than the civil and military officials, shall each be allowed to pursue his own calling so that there may be no discontent. Evil customs of the past shall be broken off and everything based upon the just laws of nature. And knowledge shall be sought throughout the world so as to strengthen the foundations of imperial rule. The Charter Oath was the first major reform that would change the Tokugawa shogunate system into a new Meiji area. The Meiji Restoration was done specifically to thwart the very real threat of Japan becoming colonized, occupied, and exploited economically by Western nations. The idea was, in order to not be bullied, Japan would simply become a modern world power, like the nations posing threats to it. Now, like I said, beginning of, at the beginning of this episode, I can't cover the Meiji Restoration A to Z. I want to focus on a few key aspects that make up the Meiji Restoration, which also happened to be uh, the official motto of the new Meiji government. They were Bumai Kaeka, Civilization and Enlightenment, and Fukuko Koye, Enrich the Country and Strengthen the Army. Uh, basically, this is, you know, civilization, enlightenment, and governance, military, and economics. These are the main points I want to talk about. There is a ton others, but I simply can't go into them. So, first, centralization and the new political government, Bimikaika. So, during the Tokugawa-led Edo period, Japan was under a Bakufu-Han system of governments. So, before I, I start, I'm just going to put an overlay of useful terms in a diagram, because this is going to get very confusing for the audience, who are not... Uh, knowledgeable and such things. So looking at the diagram, you can see it is a feudal class society with two large orders, the Bakufu central political government and the shogun military structure. The ruling class are samurai, military men permitted to carry a sword, followed by farmers, craftsmen, and merchants. The Bakufu central government in Edo had absolute political power over the hands, local government domains. The shogun gave daimyos land to rule, in return the daimyo pledged loyalty to the shogun. Despite how centralized this looks, economically it was a mess. Each hand was able to decide its own tax rates and other economic regulations without much bakufuse. The only real thing keeping it all together was the saikin kotai system. The system was a requirement of all daimyo to alternate their residence from their respective han and in the court at Edo. Basically, this meant they would leave their families as hostages each time they were alternating. It was a feudal hostage system, something that's actually seen in uh, some European societies at this time. So after the Charter Oath was promulgated, a general outline for Japan's development and modernization was set. This was to be a mixture of Western concepts and the revival of ancient Japanese structures of bureaucracy, fuko, a return to antiquity. In order to create the massive cultural change they sought, the new Meiji government sought to learn as much as they could from the most developed nations of their time. The famous Uakura mission of 1871 to 1873 was a diplomatic voyage to the West made by Japan's government high officials, accompanied by many students and high-born tourists as they could muster. The aim of the mission was to gain recognition for the newly reinstated imperial dynasty under Emperor Meiji, 
to change the unequal treaties that have been signed with Western nations and to explore all aspects of these Western nations, whether it be political, military, education, or economics. So after the Boshin War was concluded, the daimyo of Satsuma, Choshu, Hizen, and Tosa surrendered their armies and domains to the emperor. Other daimyo quickly followed. Well, they were forced to, as all the daimyo were reappointed as governors to their respective domains, which were now subdivisions to the new central government. Han domains were abolished and instead made into prefectures, which would be controlled by bureaucrats appointed from the new central government. The former daimyos got generous retirement packages and most became local administrators working for this new central government. By 1871, Japan was fully centralized state, something the Tokugawa shogunate never managed to really be. The central government allowed the creation of consultative local assemblies, which provided the common Japanese opportunities to participate in politics, but most importantly, not to have the ability to challenge the authority of the central government. Japan never had a written constitution, and the new centralized government sought one, but were very wary of full-blown democracy or republics. They were instead favoring something between monarchy and democracy. Japan sent ambassadors to many Western nations looking for models to build upon. The United States constitution was rejected because it was far too liberal. France and Spain's models were rejected because they seemed far too draconian and absolute. Britain's Westminster system seemed to be too unwieldy and granted too much power to Parliament for their liking. The Reichstag and legal structures of the German Empire, more specifically that of Prussia, proved to be the most interesting model for Japan's new constitution. Thus, a cabinet was formed in 1885 headed by Ito Hirobumi as the first Prime Minister of Japan. Many foreign advisors, particularly German ones, came to aid Japan in building its model. Japan wanted to balance sovereign power of the emperor with an elected legislature that could limit such powers when needed. What came about was the Meiji Constitution of 1889, it came into effect in 1890, and now I'll put up this very simple and easy to understand diagram. Take a, a nice gander at it. The organizational structure was heavily influenced by Prussian and British structures, notably the House of Representatives. Clear limits of power were established on the executive branch, as well as the emperor. Civil rights and liberties were guaranteed. What made it uniquely Japanese was that sovereignty resided with the emperor rather than the people. The emperor had the right to exercise an executive authority to appoint and dismiss all government officials. For those of you who know your World War II Japanese politics, we all know where this is going. The emperor had the sole right to declare war, make peace, conclude treaties, dissolve diets, and he held command over the army and the navy. There were, there was, excuse me, a privy council to the emperor and the inner circle of advisors known as the general, who would wield considerable influence. Now, I won't go any more into this, but note, this entire system is arguably what caused Japan's uh, fall into a military society, and a lot of these officials that came about are what caused the Asia-Pacific War of 1937. So let's move on to education and religion. Still talking about Bumai Gaika. A new educational system was created, influenced heavily by America, Prussia, and Germany. There was three types of schooling elementary, middle, and university. 
Elementary education was made universal for four years of schooling and was mandatory uh, each school year consisting of four months. This, of course, would be expanded upon uh, gradually later. In 1872, there was a 28% attendance rate for those of school age. By 1878, this went up to 40%, mostly made up of boys. The Magi leaders dictated that there shall be no community with an unschooled family and no family with an unschooled person. Eventually, a centralized school system was formed, preparing people for the new economic political roles in the new industrialized society. The nation-state played a very important role in education and sought to mobilize the people of Japan towards service of the nation. Thus, the government assumed an educative role, instructing the people in the values and habits of a newly conceived national identity. The creation of the new educational system had become the nation's kyumu, urgent business. Japan gained eight university districts, 32 middle school districts, and 210 elementary school districts during the Meiji era. By 1912, 98% of children in Japan were being educated, and this is an incredible feat. There was, however, a dissatisfaction with the direction of this education at the very beginning. You see, the new Meiji state sought fuko to restore antiquity, but at the same time to acquire the tools of the contemporary and modern world. When we say restore antiquity, this was seen as freeing the Japanese culture from its encumbrances of Chinese and Buddhist Confucian importations. This was a push to emphasize the old native deities and mythology of Japan before the Chinese influences, thus Shinto. There was a large emphasis on showcasing that Japan had a traditional history of adopting and borrowing from other cultures, such as China. This was because the new Meiji government wanted to show to its people it was okay to adopt new aspects from other cultures, which would be required to become a modern nation themselves. This is also shown quite well by the famous debate between Japan's intellectual Mori Aranori and the Chinese leader Li Hongchang in 1876. During a meeting, Li looked at Mori's western-styled suit and asked him if his Japanese ancestors had dressed the way he did. Mori replied, no, they did not. In fact, they had adopted Chinese dress, but that was no longer of practical use. Mori said that Japan had always taken the best of other civilizations for itself, and it was doing so once more. Mori then reminded Li that Li's ancestors had not worn the official robes prescribed by China's Manchu conquerors either. Japan, by interference, was at least making its own decision. You see, he's basically insulting Chinese culture at this point. It's a funny jest. Anyways... All of this meant overhauling the Buddhist and Confucian influence that had reigned over Japan for many ages. The new Meiji government quickly relegated Confucianism to a secular philosophy, no longer part of the official state theology. In 1870, school textbooks based on Confucian ethics were replaced with westernized texts. In 1890, the imperial rescript on education was signed by Emperor Meiji, and this articulated the government policy on the guiding principles of education on the new Meiji Emperor of Japan. It emphasized the common goals of rapid modernization, which meant westernization, with the support of the imperial institution. There was a pushback and a call for, for reviving the principles of Confucianism as a guide of education and public morality. However, the proponents of the modernization of Japan felt this would encourage a fall back into feudalism. The rescript, in many ways, was a compromise. 
It pushed traditional ideals of Confucianism with the new national interest highlighted by the Constitution. Despite the Religious Freedom Declaration, there was a campaign against Buddhism in order to promote Shinto and more specifically to separate Shinto from Buddhism, which were intertwined during the Tokugawa years. A synthetic great teaching was created to produce patriotic and ideologically malleable subjects. It was ostensibly non-sectarian and national with a Shinto-centered focus. There were three main structure <clears throat> instructions. Revere the gods, kami, and love the country clarify heavenly reason and the way of humanity, and revere the emperor and respect the court. Preaching guides focused on paying taxes, complying with rescripts, education, a solar calendar, military buildup, fukuko ikeome, and importation of western learning and modern civilization. Japan's rapid industrialization and economy, fukuko kiyoe enriched the country and strengthened the army. Now, I previously mentioned that many Japanese went out to Western nations to look for models to base their culture changes upon. In the early years, Meiji Japan was an agrarian society where 70% of the population was involved in farming, forestry, and fishing, and this accounted for 60% of the national output. Japan's industrial revolution began in textiles, particularly with silk, but also with cotton. During the early Meiji era, nearly half of Japan's imports came from Britain in the form of cotton and woolen goods. By 1890, Japan's textile work began to dominate its home market and overthrew the British, Chinese, and Indian textile work that had strangled them. Japan began to ship its textile products overseas, particularly to other Asian nations, and the unequal import-export situation began to fix itself. Japan used steam-powered mills to produce their goods, which meant they needed coal. The demand for coal led the Meiji government to build factories, shipyards, chemical industries, mining, railroads, and, ominously, many, many, many munition factories. The Meiji government first set up model factories in most industries, but soon embraced the capitalist system of Britain and America. The private sector exploded with aggressive entrepreneurs and financial business conglomerates known as the Zaibatsu, guiding the nation alongside the government, all borrowing technology and ideas from the West. The Industrial Revolution of Meiji-era Japan was a policy of catching up to the modern world and a joint effort between the central government and private business. Here are some numbers to give an idea of how monumental this all was. The Japanese population working in agricultural shrank from 75% in 1872 to 50% by 1920. The population rose from 34 million in 1872 to 52 million by 1915. Raw silk production and export went from 646 tons in 1872 to 9,462 tons by 1815. Uh, by 1915, excuse me. Coal production went from 0.6 tons in 1875 to 21.3 tons by 1913. The merchant fleet size of 26 ships in 1873 became 1,514 ships by 1913, and the length of the train track from uh, starting about 29 kilometers in 1872 went to a whopping 11,400 kilometers by 1914. Now, before you look fondly at all of this, do remember that the Japanese laborers suffered immensely during the rapid industrialization process, just as laborers in Europe and America had during their own industrial revolution. 
Japanese miners lived in barracks and worked 12-hour shifts for very little pay and in the presence of guards who made sure they did not slack off. The agricultural sector of Japan's economy was bearing the brunt of the taxes to pay for the cost of modernizing and industrializing the nation. One-third of Japan's arable land was farmed by tenants, and the average tenant paid about 60% of his crop to the landowners as rent, half of which went to the government as a land tax, and 40% of farmers who owned their land had only 1.1 acres or less. On top of all this, the peasants were very unhappy and being drafted into the military. This became known as a blood tax. In order to create a sense of identity with the national interest, the Meiji government needed to drum up its people with a sense of loyalty and service to the emperor. And now we've come to the military. Fukuko Kiyoe. The modernization of the Japanese military during the Meiji period should come to no surprise. It was a direct response to the growing threat of Western colonial powers. Similar to other aspects we discussed, they looked at military models from Western powers. Small arms and artillery had been imported into Japan from Europe during the mid-16th century and were used extensively in Japan's civil wars. The Sakoko period had dampened the trade network, however, the arms developed uh, and lagged during the Tokugawa years as a result. In 1868, the Meiji government established the Tokyo Arsenal, where small arms and ammunition would be manufactured. The first military academy was established in 1868 by Masajiro Umura in Kyoto. Umura is regarded as the father of the modern Japanese army. He sought to introduce conscription and military training for commoners rather than relying on the hereditary feudal force Tokugawa Japan had relied upon. Many conservative samurai opposed this, obviously, because it would end their only source of livelihood and their position within Japanese society. Sadly, Umura was assassinated in 1869 by a group of these samurai. When Emperor Meiji assumed power of the state, he ordered the formation of an imperial guard to protect himself and the imperial family. The imperial guard was organized and trained along French military lines, consisting of 12,000 officers. In 1873, the conscription laws were passed requiring every able-bodied male Japanese citizen, regardless of social class, to serve a mandatory three years of military service. This effectively ended the samurai class and caused a social unrest which eventually saw a large conflict known as the Satsuma Rebellion, also referred to as the CNN War. Again, like the Boshin War, I will be covering this in another episode and it'll be very awesome. I just simply can't speak about it here. I am very sorry to the audience, but we can't go into this. Now, in conjunction with the new law, the government modeled their ground forces after the French military and used these same rank structures. The French government contributed to this by helping train the Japanese officers. Before the Meiji government came to be, it was actually the shogunate who in 1867 asked France for help. The French sent 18 personnel to train 11,000 infantry of the shogunate. However, as time went on, and particularly after the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, the Meiji military began to be more influenced by the Prussian model. By 1878, Yamagata Aritomo pushed for the military to adopt the German military system. Gradually, the military switched from the French to German system, and one of the important changes was the adoption of the division of the army into two chains of command, administrative and operational. In 1872, the military was divided into the army ministry and navy ministry. 
Japan built its first steam warship in 1863 called the Chiodagata, which was a 140-ton gunboat. In 1870, an imperial decree determined that the British Navy should be the model for development, and a second British naval mission to Japan, which is known as the Douglas Mission of 1873 to 1879, was led by Archibald Lucius Douglas. The mission laid the foundations of naval officer training and education. France also paved a, you know, played a part during the 1880s. They influenced a doctrine favoring small, fast warships such as cruisers and torpedo boats against bigger units. As a result, the Meiji government began building 48 warships, 22 of which were torpedo boats in 1882. In 1882, there was an imperial rescript calling for an unquestioned loyalty to, to the emperor by the new armed forces. It also asserted the commands of superior officers to be equivalent to the command of the emperor himself. This meant top-ranking military leaders were given direct access to the emperor and authority to transmit his pronouncements directly to the troops. As you can imagine, this eventually would blur lines between political leadership and military. The military remained untested in the early years, so in 1874, Japan launched a military expedition on Taiwan to assert their claims to the Riku Islands. You see, a Rikuan ship had shipwrecked on Taiwan in 1871, and the crew were massacred, giving Japan a pretext for their expedition. Please note that this expedition is known as the Mudan Incident to the Chinese. Uh, Japan did seek diplomacy with the Qing Dynasty before invading, but the Qing court rejected their demands for compensation for the dead crew mates on the grounds that the Taiwanese were raw and wild natives who performed the massacre. Although the Japanese forces successfully invaded Taiwan and got the Qing government to pay an indemnity fee of 500,000 cuping tails of silver, it should be noted that it was a colossal mess. More Japanese soldiers died of malaria, over 550 by estimates, than they killed of the Taiwanese tribal forces, casualties around probably 89. Regardless, uh, Japan did occupy Taiwan and take one of its first military jabs at China. Then, in 1877, there was the Satsuma Rebellion, which I had already mentioned previously, and I will cover that in another episode. Uh, what you need to know is that the Conscription Act allowed Japan to gather more forces than the ex-Samurai-led rebels, and they quickly overwhelmed them. Uh, to conclude, you've probably noticed that I am not talking much about anything after 1890. While the Meiji Restoration lasted until 1912, I do not want to talk about the greater development after 1890 just yet. This is because I will be covering large events such as the Boxer Rebellion, the First Sino-Japanese War, and the Russo-Japanese War very thoroughly in episodes later on. So I want to leave that till later on, as you would imagine. So, like all of my other episodes, let's try to summarize everything I just said. <laughs> Japan underwent one of the most incredible rapid societal changes in human history when it went from Tokugawa-run shogunate Japan into the Meiji era. All aspects of Japanese society changed, and it was a dichotomy between a return to antiquity, fuko, and to modernize using the very best aspects Japan could find from other developed nations. The shift was messy and quite a few rebellions occurred, such as the Boshin War and the Satsuma Rebellion. The modernization process gradually took on a mil militaristic theme, 
which after the Meiji area was absolutely uh, dominant over all aspects of Japan and the Japanese Empire as we see it in World War II eventually came to be. I really hope you like this brutal summarization of the Meiji Restoration, and I know I probably didn't cover a lot of aspects that you would like. Maybe you wanted a more militaristic look at it, maybe you were interested in the economics. I tried to find somewhere on the grounds of touching the most important aspects, and of course I didn't touch the two largest wars that happened, the Boshin War and the Satsuma Rebellion. But like I said, the reason I did this was because I want to dedicate full episodes to them, and they will be coming up rather soon so stay in tuned for that because it's going to get good and for you westerners i am going to talk about the last samurai uh it does have some story involved in the satsuma rebellion and a boshin war a little bit and it'll be an interesting uh, eye-opening experience for those who didn't realize that uh that ridiculous movie is based loosely and i say loosely off some some stuff historically this has been the pacific war channel and can I get my bird to say something? Failure. Over and out.